Today we're going to be starting a whole new series today, and we are calling it Taking the Gospel Home, and there's another graphic there, but Bringing the Gospel Home. And today what I want to do is I want to talk about the four killers that stop us from actually taking the Gospel Home. Now, the funny thing is we had planned on doing this series uh, really before we, 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 were, we were ever imagining that we would be shut down and being locked down in so many different ways in our culture. And so more and more of us are actually at home more than we are at work or at church. But we're still a body of Christ, right? We're still a body of Christ. In fact, when I got with my team quite a few, few uh, months ago, we just said, listen, the lockdown is over. Regardless of if we're, we're able to be in the building or not be in the building, it doesn't stop us from being the body of Christ. So get out into the fields, get out into the homes, get out and do whatever it takes to take the gospel and take the community of the body of Christ into people's lives. We can't, we can't be stopped by canceled events. We can't be stopped by, well, I can't go here and I can't go there. We have so many opportunities and resources in our hands that we can be the body of Christ. The lockdown needs to be done. And I'm not saying politically, I'm saying spiritually, the lockdown needs to be done. And we need to remember what it is that God has called us to, that we have been called to the fields that are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few, and we're meant to pray for more laborers. You're the laborers. Let's pray for more laborers. We need more people to be involved in what God is calling us to do. But today, what I want to do is I want to talk about four things that are like what I call gospel killers. And I get it a little bit that today it sounds like a, this might sound like a negative way to talk about it, but I want to deal with the issues first that we have, the stumbling blocks that we have in front of us before we go into the, the coming weeks of talking about how can we take the gospel home as well. Now today it might be that feel like you're, that it's a little bit of a cutting today, but you know, in the great, in the, in, in the words of the great Canadian psalmist, uh, Brian Adams, it cuts like a knife, but it feels so right, right? That's just the way it goes. And he's never been a better rhymer than that, right? That's the way it goes. But it's true. It might cut like a knife, but it's going to feel so right when we see the centrality of what Jesus is trying to do in our lives. So I have four things. And some of these words, I'm going to tell you, I've made them up, but that's okay. This is the gospel according to Peter this morning, right? But here's the first one. The first one is religionism. Religionism is the first uh, uh, killer, the first stumbling block that we have to our faith and the ability to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every one of these killers, by the way, was actually told to us by Christ. I'm not just trying to connect dots here uh, just willy-nilly. This is the things that Christ said to his own disciples. And I get it. Sometimes Christ can cut like a knife himself. I mean, he's, he's no great communicator like the, the great orator, you know, Joel Osteen or anything like that. But the fact is, this is Jesus, right, saying this stuff. So let's look at the first one of religionism. It's this. In Luke 18, 9 to 14, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness. That's religionism. That's religionism. That's the ability to be able to be confident in, I know what I'm doing and I'm good with God and I, I don't have any problems in my life. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
What's a Pharisee? A Pharisee is somebody who uh, adheres to strict observance of rules and regulations. That's what a Pharisee is. And in this particular condition or situation, a Pharisee is someone who's observing strict religious laws, right? It's someone who's dependent on their own, on their own ability to build their own moral reputation and position, right? And so this is what a, this is what a Pharisee is. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, like the person sitting beside me right now in church. Right? I'm glad I'm not like this person who seems to be having lots of problems, like robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Right? I, I'm, not, I'm glad, Lord, I'm nothing like uh, these other people who are rioters. Or I'm glad I'm not like the racists. I'm glad I'm not like the gun-totting people. I'm glad I'm not like these liberals. It's amazing how we can point to other people and go, thank God I'm not like them. That's religionism. It's pointing out the problems in other people. And even this, he says, and even, or even like this tax collector. What is a tax collector? A government official. It's amazing how much opinions we have about our government officials. And we think, well, thank God we're not like them. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. He's saying, thank God I am not like them. This is what we would call in modern day language, virtue signaling. I am signaling how good I am. I am basically saying two things. I'm saying, look who I am and look what I do. You might be pointing out someone else's problems, but what you're doing is actually elevating yourself to say, at least I'm not like them. Look who I am. Look what I do. It's called virtue signaling. Years ago, there's a very famous preacher from England called G.K. Chesterton. And uh, this is like 100 years ago or something. And uh, there was a newspaper. And on the front newspaper, it said, what is wrong with the world? Now, if I had asked you what is wrong with the world, I'd have a million different responses. Only from a few hundred people would have a million different responses of what was wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton, who is a pastor himself, he wrote into the newspaper and he said, dear sir, what is wrong with the world? I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. He pointed out what the problem was. He pointed out the problem and that, that no one thinks that they do this religionism, right? But you do when you don't identify yourself as actually the root of the problem. When you don't identify yourself as being the one who is actually the sinner, well, at least I'm not like them. My sin isn't as bad as them. Listen, all sin is the same in front of God. Racism, abortion, hate, whatever it is, the devil, none of those things are the problem. Your sin is the problem, right? This is what's happening here. And so what is it that is the, the answer? What should be done with religionism? Well, Jesus goes on and he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his chest, his, his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's what Jesus said. That was the answer that he gave to us. If we're looking to bring the gospel, the, the gospel home, if we're looking to win others to Christ, I'm telling you, people trust those that examine themselves first. 
You go, but I privately examined myself. Well, why don't you just publicly examine yourself? It's hard to publicly display what your sin is. It's easy if it's already displayed on your sleeve. Years ago, I was speaking to an older pastor. And we had a common friend of this other pastor who was a very rotund fellow, right? He was, he was just really obese, right? And I remember speaking privately to this older pastor. And I said to him, I said, you know, have you ever thought about the difficulty that lies in our common friend preaching a gospel about discipline, how to become a disciple when he can't even discipline his own eating? Is there not a tension and a problem there? And this older pastor said something to me that really put me in my place. And he said, well, we know that he wears his sin and his weakness on his sleeve. The question is, where do you hide yours? And I'm like, oh, I'm good. Thanks very much. Oh, that's good. You see, this is where the authenticity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to lie. That you're not reliant on your own goodness here. You're not reliant on your own ability to keep rules and regulations to show your sanctification. But you're honest before God to say, I'm the problem here. My sin is the one who is not carrying the gospel to the, to the level that it should be at. Here's the second one that I am making up, and this is it. I'm calling it saviorism. Saviorism. The first one was religionism. The second one is saviorism. And it may sound a little bit like the first one, but I'll explain the differences. And here's the story that Jesus tells. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, you can imagine when Jesus was saying this, that the comical uh, delivery of thinking of a plank of wood in someone's eye, right? But he, it may seem like it's an, an extravagance, extravagance of a description, but this is the point he was trying to get to. Why is it that you pay no attention to the plank that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's this huge plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Whoa, told you. Brian Adams was right. It's going to cut like a knife, but it's going to feel just right. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This might seem like religionism, but it's saying this. I'm now going to fix you. It's one thing to point out the problems in other people and then to say, thank God I'm not like them, but to actually get to the place of saying, but I'm now going to take on the great job of trying to now fix you. I'm going to tell you where you are wrong. You know what this is? This is the uninvited teacher. Sometimes I can fall prey to this. Sometimes I'm so busy trying to bring solutions and fixes to people's lives that I'm not taking the time to listen to them, to actually absorb what it is that they're saying, or even to ask the Holy Spirit, do you even want me to say something here? But I'm so busy jumping in to go, you know what you need? You know what you should do? I'm fixing, fixing, fixing. It's saviorism. What's worse, I believe, is when someone does this and their life is a problem, their life is a mess as well. It's amazing. I've, I've heard people who have gone into things like, I'm going, to become a, I'm going to become a coach and they're now a coach and they're going to start coaching people on how to have strong marriages, but they've had three divorces and they've never had a good marriage. I told you, it's going to cut like a knife, but it's going to feel just right. It's amazing how we can tell other people what they need to do with their life, but we actually haven't got ourselves sorted out so far. But I have so much to share, you would say. 
It's so much to be able to give to others that God has given to us. It's not about saying that you can't share something, but simply this, that Jesus is saying, admit the plank in your own eye first. Take a saw to that plank first. Go get help and mentorship and, 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 and discipleship and, and, and uh, be trained in how to walk in the ways of God. Find someone else that you could submit yourself to who can actually show you how to become a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then it says, then you will see clearly to remove the speck in another man's eye. You see what I'm saying? This is not that God hasn't given you something great. He has given you something great. But if there is some unconfessed sin in your life already, if there's something that is not disciplined, then you're going to find that unconfessed sin is what demonic powers feed off of. Demonic powers are roaming the earth to figure out what chaos they can bring to earth. And all they need is the landing strip of your unconfessed sin. Number three today, number three. The third one is fakerism. I told you, I'm making it up as I go along. Fakerism, fakerism. John 15 verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that, what, it says, what does that say? Bears no fruit. Let's say it again. What does it say? bears no fruit. It's not a good-looking branch. It's not a pretty branch, not a strong branch, but simply a branch that shows no real fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Let me bring in another scripture, right? It's a story about something that Jesus did. And it's in Matthew 21. It says, early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, Jerusalem, he was hungry. I'm hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. Now, in context, if you're into, if you're into theology or, or, or history and thought like that, in context, this is, this is what's believed. We believe that Jesus was really talking about the issue of the state of Israel. He was, he was talking about the state of Jerusalem. And in fact, right after this, he walked up into the temple and he saw all the money changers out and they were doing business and selling animals that they could go sacrifice in the temple. And he just got livid. He took the tables and he just flipped them over. And he's like, my father's house will not be a place for den or a den of robbers and thieves. My father's house will be a place where we will worship him. He was incensed because they were putting business before God. And so this is the context where when he was looking at this tree, he's like, you're like Israel, this tree, where you're looking like you're religious. You're looking like you have the Savior amongst you. You're looking like you've got fruitfulness in your life, but you don't. And it's not just something he goes, well, I just bless you and I hope that you find fruitfulness. And he walks on. He goes, you know what? I've given you enough time. I curse you now. Wow. Listen, kids read your words and your actions. Your children and your neighbors, you could tell them you're a Christian as much as you want, but they're reading your words and your actions. Your leaves are like your presentation. The leaves on the tree is like the presentation you're, doing, you're giving to the world, but your fruit is what's happening in your home life when the door is closed. You might be singing songs on Sunday, but maybe you're cursing your wife on Monday. Maybe you're the king of a beautiful home, but you're not the master of your tongue. 
Maybe you've got this beautiful curated Instagram feed with all your life and how wonderful it is and your opinions about politics, but you're a control freak. Maybe you're someone who's got hashtag blessed life on your wall, but you're living with no purpose beyond just being a parent and being a good citizen. Guess what? I know plenty non-Christians who are good parents and they're also very good citizens and they pay their taxes and they do what's right seemingly in the eyes of God, but they don't confess Jesus. This is what he is talking about. What should be done with fakerism? Well, Jesus says it very clearly. He says, bear fruit. You have to bear fruit. There is no choice in this. Give your kids, your family, your neighbors something to be inspired by. Give them something. Feed them purpose in life. Become a sacrifice yourself. Become the vehicle of service and make a difference on this earth because your life is the the, the width of a hair compared to eternity. There is not much time that you have to do what it is that God has called you to. And you can blame the fact that you don't have enough money, you don't have enough time, you don't have enough skills, you don't have enough connections. You can give as many reasons as you want to why you don't have the time and why you don't have the money and why you're not able to do it. But I'm telling you, you're still going to stand before God someday. And he's going to go, hey, what, did I, what is it that you did with the resources that I gave you? Well, I raised my children and I was a good citizen and I paid my taxes. Like, no, 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 that's expected of you. That's, that's, that's something that you should not be proud of because you've done a great job with that. That's not, you don't get kudos for that, right? The needle's not moving on that one. The needle is moving is when we become like Christ and we take up our cross and we sacrifice ourselves to tell others about the goodness of God. That's where it lies. Here's the last one today. And the last one is the big one, right? Most Christians, I think, can fall into this and suffer from this. And this is a real word. This one is modelism. Modelism. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 19, it says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Now, when I was growing up, I'm like, what? Jesus, you are good. What are you talking about here? Wait, wait, why? Is this like some weird stuff you're doing with us here? I mean, what's, what, why are you, what, you just, is this a cra- what, what are you challenging here? Because we know that God is good. He's God, right? But what he was challenging, the fact was, this guy didn't think of him as God. He just looked at what he did and what he achieved and went, oh, he's a good man. Let me try and become like him. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. I don't know if you noticed what Jesus just did right here. He left out some of the commandments. You know which ones he left out? He left out the ones that dictates your behavior towards God. This is only the commands that he gave that dictates your behavior towards other people. This is all about doing good to others. It's nothing about God. This is what moralism is. It's nothing to do with being saved from your sin. It's all to do with being a good person. Many think that they're Christian because they're good. 
I've literally heard people say this over the years. Well, I'm a good person. And inside, I'm like, you are? Oh, okay. I'd love to test this one. You're such a good person. But here's the thing. Non-Christians can keep all these commands here. People who don't follow Christ, who don't follow God, they can keep all those commands here, but it doesn't take them into an eternity of righteousness. It doesn't take them into a place of living with God. All they're doing is, now listen to this, they're living what I call the proverb life. Now we've all read the book of Proverbs, right? Where the book of Proverbs is, do what's right here. Do what's wrong. Don't do what's wrong over there. Do, uh, be, be honest with your money. Don't, don't, don't steal from people. The book of Proverbs is actually just following principles. It's a list of principles. But what's worse is when people equate the fact that God must love me because my life is blessed. I have a wonderful marriage. I've got family and I've got, I've got children who are being educated and everything's wonderful for me. So God must love me because I'm a good person. I've seen this so many times, but that's not really going to fix it. There's nothing in the Bible that says, be a good person and you shall be saved. What do we do with moralism? Well, first of all, we have to admit this, that according to Romans 3.12, all have turned aside and no one does good. No, not one. Not one. To think that we are good enough, even if we've given our lives to Christ, I'm good enough. No, that's not the way it is. Let God be true and every man a liar, Scripture says. Here's the key to a life of moralism. Here's the key to a life of a book of Proverbs. In fact, it's in Proverbs. It's in Proverbs 1-7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge you're about to read in the rest of Proverbs. That is the ability to do what's good. We're not saying don't do good. We know that doing good is so important, but doing good is a response to God, not a right to be with God. It's a response to God, not a right to be with God. But why fear? Why do I have to be scared of God? It's not really a scaredness of God. It's a healthy fear and a healthy respect of God. And we need fear because we're not just saved from sin, but we're saved from the wrath of God. Most of us think that, well, I escaped my sin. It's dealt with cross, dealt with the cross. I'm buddies with God. The fact is, God is a dangerous God. He is still a dangerous God and he still wants to refine us. It says in the last days as Christ comes that everything will be tested by fire. Everything will be tested that we might be purified to become like his son. Having a fear of God goes beyond just changing your behavior. It goes about the business of changing your heart. The gospel regenerates your heart. And if your heart is not regenerated and you're only living a good life, please don't tell anyone about Jesus. Oh, maybe that's not true. Hopefully God will do something with whatever you say. But it would be so much better if there was a manifestation of a regeneration of what God has done for you in your heart, that your heart changes before you even try to change your behavior. Look at this, if we continue on from that story of the rich young ruler that came up to Jesus and said, good, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It says, teacher, he declared, all these, that's the 10 commandments, doing good to other people. He said, I have kept since I was a boy. 
I've been doing this stuff and I've been working hard at it. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He didn't despise him. He loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Many have looked at this and said, oh, that's the key to being godly. Just get rid of your money. That's not the key. That was the key to this guy. Why? What was his problem? Look at this. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Ah, the problem is that he has great wealth. That's what his stumbling block was. No, the problem was that he was challenged what he really feared. And what he really feared was being penniless. What he really feared was being poor. What he really feared was not having control. He feared that more than he feared God. Do you see what I'm saying? And I realize it's a very, very close line that we're treading here, but this is what's important to God. And we're not living a good life just for the sake of thinking that somehow that's going to elevate us to eternity. It's not. It's a response to the fear that we have in our hearts, to a great gratitude that we have in our hearts that Christ has saved us. As we're finishing here, the story is that someone, it was a professor years ago that was asked, what would it look like if a world was run by the devil? And he said, you know, the interesting thing with that answer is that most people would probably consider that a world that is run by the devil is a world that is full of bars and drunkenness. It's a world that is full of rapes and murder. A world that is full of abortion and full of riots and full of racism and full of all that bad stuff. He said, if that is a world that is run by humans, He said, a world that is run by the devil himself, he said, I would imagine is a world where everything is just perfect, where everything, where people are living in harmony with one another and children are very obedient and people are paying their taxes and everyone is doing good things and they're even going to church on Sunday to be a good person. But the gospel is never preached. They're calling to repentance for the sin within our hearts is never preached. He said, that's a world run by the devil. I think or wonder sometimes if we've been looking to the world and think we have to fix it. We have no fix. We have no political policy to give. We only have Christ crucified, a way back to the Father for the forgiveness of our sins, For every one of us knows where we have fallen short before God. And we must give ourselves to Christ first every freaking day. Because in that spirit, then we will have a passion to bring the gospel home. To bring it to our neighbors. To bring it to our children. Always identifying ourselves at the foot of the cross. And never just at the gates of the pearly gates of heaven. Father, this morning. I pray that you would bring conviction to our hearts right now. But where we are seated and where we are, that we can see where we have been a faker. We can see where we have been religious. We've been trying to be a savior. We've tried to be a moralistic good person that we have stumbled and fallen in places that we have have been trying to fight for our own goodness and fight just to keep our head above the water when, Lord, we have to give ourselves to the cross every day. Forgive us our sins as we forgive against those is what you taught us to pray every day, Jesus. And I pray, God, that we would get our hearts corrected before you, that there be a renewed fear within us to say, God, you are my God. 
I am nothing like a tax collector that beats his chest and says, have mercy upon me. And Father, renew this passion and desire within our hearts once again to desire our families and our children and our neighbors to be saved. Because anyone who does not call upon your name does not have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. We want to be free, but we want our neighbors to be free and our, our children to be free. Bring us this passion once again. We ask this in your precious Son's name. May God bless you, may He keep you, and may He make His face shine upon you. As all God's people said, amen. We love you guys.